that really precedes everything that we have been studying. Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we embark upon this very intense chapter of Scripture, the 19th chapter of the Revelation, that you would help us to understand the intensity of it. Even this morning, Father, as we, we sang that 90-second psalm, and, which speaks of warfare in such a way that might make us feel uncomfortable, recognizing, Father, that Israel very much was engaged in actual warfare with surrounding and very dark and evil nations. And yet, as we get into the New Testament, we realize that that warfare teaches us of a different kind of warfare, a spiritual warfare that is no less intense, that has even greater consequences. So we do pray, Father, that you would help us to be warriors in this capacity, help us to understand that battle in which you called us to engage. And all of this, Father, may we never lose sight of the fact that the battle is the Lord's. And he marches before us and within us. And so we pray, Father, that you would grant us the wisdom of these things as we study this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. A uh, former player I I coached had the uh, privilege of being on the national volleyball team for a period of time. It was back in the 80s. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the USA won back-to-back gold medals in the 80s, 84 and 88. So this former player of mine was surrounded by excellence. He wasn't on the team when they won those gold medals, but he got on the team afterward. And I remember meeting with him, and he shared with me what it felt like to finally get in a game. Now, he was the only player on his side of the court who had not won a gold medal. All the other five guys, there are six volleyball, indoor volleyball is six against six. So all other five guys on his side of the court had a gold medal hanging somewhere in their garage. And during a game, a ball fell in front of him that he should have made a play on, and he didn't. For those of you who don't understand volleyball, volleyball is like a very serious game of don't let the balloon touch the ground. (laughs) So the ball's in front of him. It hits the ground. He really should have made the play on that ball. And I asked him, so how did your teammates respond to, you know, you failing to get that ball up? He said, none of them said a word. I, I, know the co- I knew the coach, and he's still, he's still alive, and I'm guessing that was kind of a rule he had. Yeah, you don't talk to your teammates. He said, none of them said a word, but all five of them gave him a look that spoke very loudly, and the look said, that ball gets picked up on this team. The coach of this team, who, by the way, was just a phenomenal coach, had developed a culture of victory. And my friend's presence in that culture made him individually not only a superior athlete, but a superior person. To be surrounded by that affected him in every conceivable way. This is something that great coaches do. This is something that great leaders do. They foster an environment where those in that environment become the best possible versions of themselves. And we become that best possible version individually because a team is made up of individuals but we become the best possible version of ourselves individually by our selfless interaction and contribution to the team. 
the, the Christian faith is very much a team sport. You, we are saved, no doubt, individually, one at a time, person by person. But the Christian faith is a team sport. And we recognize that type of culture, sometimes in a workplace, sometimes in a family. I think to myself, you know, I don't know what's going on in In-N-Out Burger in terms of their management training program, but how is it that that fast food chain has the most efficient, wonderful people on the planet? Am am I wrong? I don't know. That and right behind it, Chick-fil-A. And if, if this didn't go out on the air, I would say there are other fast food places like Jack in the Box where that just doesn't happen. <laughs> Somehow there's this culture, and, 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 it's, and it's, I think it's a top-down culture that is created. We need to begin thinking in that corporate way, we need to begin thinking in terms of what has God brought me into that I am to participate in to ameliorate that culture, that all the boats in the harbor need to race together. Now, it's not in my notes, and I always take a deep breath when I decide to go off script. But I'm going to say this, you know, I've been here for a long time, and um, I don't have any plans of retiring anytime soon. Um, you know, I'm, you know, as far as I know, in decent health. Uh, we we all we do have a plan. You know, we are developing a plan for who will ever take my place because, you know, I am at the age where you're just not as guaranteed the next day as other people. I've done three, doing three funerals in 13 days, and. Most of them are people right around my age. So we're in preparation for that. And let me, let me just say that, you know, I've been here for a long time, and I've sat in a lot of ashes with a lot of you people. I mean, as I look out here, there's a story that, a lot of stories with a lot of people. And I, and I appreciate that you appreciate me. I do appreciate that. But, but last week, an elder came here and gave an exhortation, and we had a really poor turnout in church. You know, I'm not sure exactly why that was. Maybe everybody got sick at the same moment. You know, I don't know what that was, but let me tell you this, that if you want to be grateful to me because of the ashes we sat in all these years, when at some point the Lord takes me home, I expect you to be the next generation of people who are mature enough to be the ones dedicating your gifts to the advancement of the ministry in this church. Maybe in some vain and empty way, I can be complimented that when I'm not here, people don't show up. But the way I would feel about that would be the way I would feel that if I knew that if I passed away, that my children no longer got together. The way I would feel that if I, I'm like, oh, dad is gone, therefore our family is going to like implode. No, if you want to be thankful to me individually, but more importantly, thankful to Christ, what you need to do when Pastor Paul moves on to wherever he moves on, and like I said, I'm, I'm planning on being here longer than maybe some people would like, but I'm planning on staying. Utilize that maturity to be somebody who is serving and using your gifts in that capacity. Like I said, the Christian faith, is, it's, a, it's a team sport. Now, as we turn to chapter 19, I don't want us to lose sight of that great promise. Revelation is such a big picture book, but there is a promise that those who read, those who hear, and those who actually keep, in other words, that you are looking at it intently, right? You're looking at it with the intentions of doing something, will be blessed as a result of their examination of the revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which were written in it for the time is near. They were about, those seven churches were about to go through something very difficult. 
But in the same manner that we might find ourselves going through difficult times, the revelation speaks to us as well in terms of the way we should respond. From the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, from the Father to the Son to an angel to John and then to us, Revelation is written to strengthen God's people in the midst of turmoil and temptation and tribulation. It's not written for our amusement. It's written to strengthen us, to motivate us, to keep our eyes fixed upon the author of our salvation and to ever serve him to our, to our last breath. At the same time, it is not a book written for mere defense. It's not a book we're written going, I'm going I'm to find my little hovel and I'm going to stay in it and hope I don't get touched by the world. The gates of hell are to be toppled by the church. And we are commissioned by Christ to be ambassadors, soldiers in this glorious enterprise. And I, and I thought about that when we were singing, you know, the psalm. And it's, I mean, we sang a psalm today. I mean, what that means is we're, we're singing Scripture. But as I'm looking at that Scripture, I'm like, this is violent. I mean, did you notice Psalm 92? It's, it is war. Now, keep in mind, it's, it's David writing about the battles with very evil nations by which Israel was surrounded who were serving the devil through their gods, Molech or Dagon or Baal. I mean, these nations were evil nations, and the battle was intense. But as we get into the New Testament, we recognize that those things were all pedagogical. They were, they were designed to instruct us about the battle that we're in. And we, and we are to be participants right here, right now, I'm not putting on a show with you as the spectator. We are all putting on a show with God as the spectator. And the show involves us coming to understand His call in our lives and our marching orders when we come to realize that He has opened our hearts to believe in Him as our Savior and as our Lord. But unlike coaches, I guess unless they're a player coach, Unlike some bosses, unlike maybe some elders, unlike most politicians, Christians who are sent by Christ on this great commission have the promise of Christ's presence by his word and by his spirit. He didn't leave and say, I've got a job for you, good luck, I hope it works out. What did he say? Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I have taught you. And then what? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, it is beyond the allotted scope of time to give all the possible interpretations of this chapter of Revelation. Suffice it to say that chapter 19 is a major watershed when it comes to theological convictions and eschatological expectations. I mean, what is it teaching us theologically, and what is it telling us in terms of God's plan for history? I mean, as much as we've seen disagreements in other chapters, it is disagreement 2.0 when it comes to chapter 19. What is plan? What is God's plan for human history is contained in this chapter and your role and my role in it. On one end of the spectrum, we have the five gold medalists who are saying, even with their eyes, that ball does not go down on this team. And everyone involved takes a deep breath. And with all of their, as Jesus said, with all of your heart, soul, 
mind, and strength, you re-engage. Because we recognize, as sinful humans, sometimes the ball hits the floor, right? And so what do you do? You know, we have a coach in the room who I'll bet you 10,000 times he said this phrase, next play focus, right? That happened, put it in the rearview mirror, move forward. With everything you got, continue in the fight. That's one of the things, by the way, I love about the pardon of sin. We come in here and we are worshiping God. And I, I recognize that most of you have walked into this room and you're carrying some garbage, right? Whether it's your own behavior, the behavior of people around you, some difficulty. And then you come in this room and you hear that there is a God in heaven who by the blood of Christ has pardoned you of all your sins, so why don't we sing about it? I have to say, I quite enjoy that. You think in almost 33 years of getting up here and preaching that I, every single week, have had such a wonderful week that I can just get up here and kind of get all excited about the Christian faith because of my own behavior? I remember years ago, I was a, I was a track and field athlete before I was a volleyball player, and I did a thing called the decathlon. And that's 10 events, and one of the events is the shot put. And I remember um, back in the day, maybe this will be hard for you to believe, I was kind of skinny. You didn't really have to laugh. <laughs> but I was. I mean, I was same height, 6'2", but I weighed 167 pounds. So I've gained like 10 pounds. So I had to gain weight because I had to learn how to do, you know, I do the shot put and the discus, and these are weight events. And I remember, I remember out there throwing the shot, you know, and it, it's 16 pounds, you know, and I, but I also remember this. I, I had, and I can't tell you right now what it was, but I had some failure in my own life. So it was probably a, some kind of moral failure. And I remember throwing the shot, and I remember I'd throw it and pick it up and throw it and pick it up. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I want to take the Lord's Supper this Sunday. I don't know if I want to, and I don't think I was even a pastor at the time, but I'm like, I don't want to go, I'm just so unworthy, you know, and I remember picking the shot put up, and my own gut felt like that shot, right? It's like the shot put was kind of a metaphor for my own heart, and I remember thinking, I am so unworthy, and as I picked the shot up, and I walked back to the ring to throw it one more time, and I'm not a charismatic, so I didn't hear this audibly, but God said, well, when when were you worthy? How full of yourself are you that you thought last week you were worthy? You're just being reminded. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And when we come in here, we take a deep breath and recognize that the only reason we can lift our hearts and mouths up in song is not because we had such a great week. I'm all about having a great week. Don't get me wrong. This isn't a license for sin. But when we gather in this setting, we're rejoicing because it's something that's been done for us, not because of our inherent abilities. So on the one end of the spectrum, you have those five gold medalists who when you fail, they look and they're like going, look it, we can do better. You can do better. And I would argue that chapter 19 contains that message that there is a path of victory that we are on and we need to work hard to engage in that victory. On the other end of the spectrum, and I don't want to sound snarky here or uncharitable, but it is the popular view, and I can't tell you, of all the views of end times, this is the one that's the most popular in our culture, and I think it's the most wrong. On the other end of the spectrum are those who, when the ball hits the floor, rejoice, for it is a sign that the end of the game is coming soon. And even though we lose here, we're going to win in heaven. The bank, we're going to lose the game. It's inevitable, we lose. But the banquet will be good. Now, I I do believe that people who hold that view will be at that banquet, But I think that's a very unhealthy attitude. 
to believe in the inevitability of the failure of the Christian faith. The, the failure of Christianity. Now, next week we do hot topics, so we're not going to be doing the second part of chapter 19. The week after that, I'm going I'm to try to teach you that I'm not giving a straw man here. I'm going to quote books written by people who hold the more popular view, and one of the headings in one of the most popular books is going to be the failure of Christianity. And we'll get into that in two weeks. I think it's an unhealthy approach to the faith. Now again, with a broad brush, we're going to sweep through this chapter. We're only going to touch on the more major themes, but the chapter begins with a series of Alleluias, verses 1 through 6. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of a mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So we open up this chapter with a series of Alleluias. In all the New Testament, this is the only chapter where we see this word, Alleluia. And this, my friends, is the true Hallelujah chorus. That word, by the way, it means praise to Jehovah. And we see three entities rejoicing here. We see the multitude in heaven, the 24 elders, and the four living creatures. They're all praising God. And then the section culminates not with a record of people praising God, but with a call for God's servants to praise Him as well. If the heavenly host, if the 24 elders, if the four living creatures, if in that area, in that heavenly realm, they find God worthy to be praised, what is wrong with us if we do not? It's almost as if, okay, look at I'm going to open the veil and give you an image of what's going on in the heavenlies. And the Lord God omnipotent is reigning and being worshipped. And the imperative comes to you and it comes to me that we should as well participate in that worship. But specifically here, why are they praising him? What are the alleluias all about? Well, I would argue that they are praising him for what he accomplished in chapter 18, right? Chapter 19 is right after chapter 18. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to him because he has judged the forces of corruption. They're praising him because he has judged the forces of evil. This corruption was a Christ-killing, Christian-killing corruption, right? It's the, 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 they had been shedding the blood of the saints. Remember the prayer in chapter 6? How long, O oh Lord, before you avenge us? How long will you allow evil to continue? How long before you depose that which is against the living Christ and his people? He's being praised because his judgments are true and righteous. He's being praised because, you know, we have this funny inclination, right, that, that good is going to win out. We, we have this, this idea that, you know, I have the idea that even in history, but most certainly in eternity, good will win out. Where do we get that? Why do we not think evil is going to win? I would say that it is the perspicuous message of Scripture that the Lord God omnipotent reigns and we know that he will in the end have a victory that is complete 
Today, we, the call to worship was Psalm 110, right? For he must reign until he makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. You know, that's the most quoted verse in the New Testament out of the Old Testament. He is reigning now. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he is reigning now and he will continue to reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet and there's one last enemy and that enemy is death. And there will come a time when death will be no more. He's being praised because he is a righteous God exercising righteous judgments throughout the course of history. We have to recognize that God is long-suffering, but he will not suffer evil indefinitely. You ever have people kind of criticize the Christian faith by saying, well, if God's up in heaven, why is, evil, why is he allowing evil to continue? And they never for a moment think in their mockery that if God decided to immediately stop evil, they would be at the top of the list. We should be thankful that God is patient. We should be thankful that he's allowing people time to come, as it were, to their senses. And I think that's uh, Peter's point when he's talking about, you know, the idea that God is, is patient. But I think what we see here in verses 1 through 6 is Christ executing his office. Here's a catechism question for you. What are the offices of Christ? All right, so you need to know that. If, yes. And if you go outside of our church and people go, what church you go to? And you go, Branch of Hope. And they go, what are the three offices of Christ? And you don't know the answer to that question. Go, oh, I meant uh, bread of life, not branch of hope. Pick, pick another church. No, I'm just kidding. But Jesus, and by the, Bread of Life is a good church, by the way. I just picked that one because it sounds like Branch of Hope. But he's exercising his office as king. And what we learn in our, the catechism question, number 45, is that as king, he is preserving his elect by, quote, restraining and overcoming all their enemies. He is taking care of you. He's taking care of me. He's taking care of us. He scrutinizes our path. Right? We see in Psalm 139 that we go for a walk and he's looking at our path. Remember when my children were little and we'd go for a walk, right? And I didn't have them on a leash. Some people put their kids on a leash. And I get that, right? Because you're going for a walk and you're all of a sudden you're looking at the path. Is, 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 uh, are they going to trip over that crack in the sidewalk? Is there a car coming? Is there a dog free? Like you're looking at all the things. I mean, the, you know, we have people with little ones, right? And, um, you know, when you get married, life changes. But when you have that first child, it's the end of the world as you know it. <laughs> but when that child becomes ambulatory... You know what I mean? When that child can begin to move, now you really, you're, because you walk into a room, right? And what do you do? You look at where are the outlets? Is there any sharp corners? I mean, it's this idea that as a parent, you're going, I got to make sure like, there's a safe environment for my child. That is what Christ does for us as king. He's going, I am going to examine your environment and I'm going to protect you from all. And, and we can know this, that the difficulties that we encounter are by his very design. They're not things where God's going, oh, I, I didn't notice that. It is, in fact, the, his power in our lives to mold us into the image of his son, which inevitably involves some type of suffering or difficulty. But in the final analysis, he is overcoming all the enemies of our soul. And I think we see that in Revelation chapter 19. You see in chapter 18, verse 20, we see that this heavenly host is obeying that. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. God has exercised his justice. Praise him for that. 
Now, of course, judgments can be good news or bad news. I mean, we, th- we tend, when we look at certain aspects of the Bible and we see that God has brought his righteous judgments, we are like, amen. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good news for everybody. And I always remember I was doing a, a men's retreat up in Northern California and I was talking about this type of thing and somebody asked me, you know, they raised their hand and they asked me, so are you saying the gospel isn't always good news? Because it does mean good news, right? But the gospel, and we have to understand this, is not good news for everybody. The Apostle Paul talks about the gospel as an aroma, right? He presents it as an aroma. He goes, we bring forth this aroma, and for some, it is the aroma of what? Life. But for others, the same aroma is what? The aroma of death. So so I guess my question for you is, is this judgment good news for you? The marriage supper of the Lamb is contained in this chapter. I would argue that the marriage supper of the Lamb is the seminal event which proclaims those for whom the judgments of God are truly good news. Similar to the entire theme of Revelation and both the Old Testament and New Testaments, there is rejoicing due to the redeeming power of Christ. If I've said this once, I've said it a number of times, I like it to be one of the little thematic things I say, and that is when we get to Revelation, we don't have some new message that is in conflict with the other 65 books of the Bible. It is a very dramatic representation of a message we've already heard, that there is a God who in history and in eternity exercises his judgments. By the grace of God and through faith in Christ, we are to be on the right side of those judgments. Verses 7 through 10, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Boy, there's a lot in those very few verses. And again, we're just going to touch on this. But I'm going to ask you, how do you know that these true and righteous judgments of God are in fact good news for you. As we see so often in Scripture, the church is likened to a bride. Are are you the bride of Christ? A bride cleansed. Paul goes into this in detail in Ephesians chapter 5, right? The bride cleansed through the washing of water with the word. In a primary sense, this clean and bright linen that we just read of in that chapter is is by the pure blood of Christ. It's sprinkled. In the Old Testament, you would see the blood being sprinkled. They would take hyssop, which was a plant, and they'd dip it in the blood of the lamb, and they'd sprinkle the people, and they'd sprinkle the implements. And I mean, it's kind of weird for us, but we're like, it seems like you're making them dirty, but you're not. You're actually cleansing them by the sprinkled blood of Christ, which all that typified. We saw in chapter 7, verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, are your robes white by the blood of the Lamb? Does that belong to you? You might say, I believe Jesus died and he rose again. My question is, did he die and rise again for you? Have, have you embraced that message by faith? Have you, you know, have you, as Joshua says, as for me and my house, we choose the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an unabashed, unashamed Calvinist. But a proper understanding of Calvinism 
does not alleviate the responsibility that you and I have to choose Christ. At the same time, John does not distance the righteous acts of the saints. Maybe as you were reading that, that might have troubled you, right? This idea that it is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, this, are, you clean, are you cleansed by the blood of Christ? Or are you cleansed by the righteous acts of the saints? There are times in our desire to distinguish this very critical doctrine. Justification, sanctification. Justification is this idea that by the blood of Christ we are acquitted. It is something that happens outside of us. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we just had this adoption, you know, a celebration. That's one of the beauties of that in terms of understanding adoption. Because when you adopt somebody, you have the parents in the room with the person who's in charge of the adoption agency, right? And all of that takes place really apart from the child. There's, there's, there's negotiation going on between the parents and the head of the adoption agency, And as a result of what happens in that office, that child is now part of this family. That's very similar to our relationship with God. That our our, the negotiations that took place in order for us to be in the family of God happen between the Father and the Son. He presents His own blood as an anchor for our soul in the Holy of Holies. And then opens our eyes to what has been done for us outside of ourselves. But then what necessarily follows that is a thing called sanctification. It's questions three and four of the vows we made today, right? That we recognize the lordship of Christ. And the Bible doesn't always go out of its way to distinguish these things the way we as theologians do. That it necessarily follows that if in fact I am saved, I must work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm not working for my salvation. I am working out my salvation. We don't give our righteous acts a vacation. We are to walk in them. Let us also point out here that there is no human endeavor that has greater utilitarian effect in terms of the promotion of our own Christ-likeness than the sacrament instituted by Christ, which is here called the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is routinely called the Lord's Supper. We do that in this church every Lord's Day. We have the Lord's Supper. And uh, I feel like as a church, um, we have come to realize the value of this so much that on certain Sundays when we don't have it, it seems wrong, right? And I, if we were to embrace my particular brand of uh, political ecclesiology, okay, let me, okay, I'm going to get in a little bit of trouble here. Now, see how interested you all are at this? I'm a, I'm a, a, a two-office yeah, I believe that the Bible talks about elders and deacons. Those are the two offices in the church. And, uh, you know, but, but our denomination, and I, I'm, I'm willfully submitting to our denomination, and I don't think it's horrible, right? It's mainly a three office, right? The teaching elder, also called the pastor, the ruling elder, and the deacon. And so the way our denomination works is if the teaching elder is not there, you don't have the Lord's Supper, and you don't have a benediction. And there are certain things that are going, we're going, to st- we're going to examine the teaching elder a little bit more tightly than a ruling elder. And I, I look at I appreciate the spirit behind that. I do. They're kind of going, like as a presbytery, we want to look out for our churches. Amen to that. I just happen, and I'm not the only person, I happen to be a person who thinks, well, there are two offices, and it's the elder board who takes responsibility for the proper administration of the Lord's Supper, not me as an individual. I am Pastor Paul. I am not Pope Paul, and I'm not equating our denomination to the Roman Catholic Church. All I'm saying is that, that I, I would, if I had my way, and if I, you know, if I, were, if I were Pope, 
of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We'd have communion even on Sundays when I wasn't here. But I'm not that, and it should give you comfort that I don't have that kind of power. Like, I'm not, I'm not that much in charge of what goes on in this church. But having said that, we had decided years ago that we were going to do the Lord's Supper every week, because we used to do it every month, and then people were like, oh, we shouldn't do it every week, because if we do it every week, it's going to become rote and repetitious, and it's going to lose its value and meaning, and so forth. And I came to realize, after we did it for about 10 years that way, that is not even remotely true. Doing it every week does not make it less valuable. Like I've always said, I go, it doesn't make it any less value than if I decide I'm going to say I love you to my wife on a quarterly basis. It only loses its value if my wife perceives that I'm not really loving her, right? Then it just becomes empty words. But if you are thoughtfully participating in the Lord's Supper, then as you engage in it, you realize the value and the beauty of it. And I remember doing a, um, a live radio show one time, and I, I threw out a question, and the question was, what would you view as the top ten things that God has provided for you to grow as a Christian? And people said things like, you know, small groups and prayer and reading your Bible. and all, You know, none of them were bad things. But you know what never, ever made the list? The Lord's Supper. We, we, we view it as expendable. But I would argue here that we have this reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that the way that you and I experience that is something we're going to do in a minute, and that is when we go to the Lord's table and He strengthens us through the loaf and the cup. Interestingly enough, and when all this happens, John immediately engages in bad worship. Did you notice that? He falls down and starts worshiping the messenger and is sharply corrected when that happens. The way God is worshiped is very important. You know, there's an old saying, it goes like this. It's not how you worship, it's who you worship. Have you ever heard that one? Okay, that's very wrong. I'm going to go on record saying that is very wrong. Who you worship, I would say, is most important. But God seems to be very picky about the way in which he is worshipped. We don't get to just make up things in terms of the way we would worship God. We are to worship God in a manner that he has prescribed. And there's a reason for that. Because the the way I think you should be worshipped is me kind of determining who he is. Let me give you one example. I remember when I was a kid, I lived in Hermosa Beach. I'd ride my bike. We were about six, seven, eight years old. And our neighbor, Mr. Graham, we'd ride by his house, and he'd be watering the lawn, and he'd squirt us with the hose, you know. And we thought it was all pretty funny, and it was, hey, kids, you know, and it was just, but you know what, it was his way of kind of going, oh, I like you. He liked us. Right? That, that is what he perceived to be something we would enjoy, which we did enjoy. So the relationship made sense. He understood us. We understood him. So I got married, and I tried that with my wife. <laughs> did not have the desired effect. So, you, you, you know, husbands, you know, we, we're going to kind of get into this soon. You know, Peter says, husbands, love your wife in an understanding way, right? So do you understand? Because when I was squirting my wife with the hose, I didn't understand. But we are, God is going, look, and I'm going to tell you about me and how I am to be, to be worshipped. And the heart, by the way, of that worship is not my own testimony but it is, as we read in this passage, the testimony of Christ. It's his message, not my message. So with the great worship, the clean linen, and the marriage supper of the Lamb in the foreground, we move to a second thought portrayed in verses 11 through 21, which we're going to finish in two weeks. Now, though there is unanimous agreement regarding who is on the white horse, Unlike earlier, right, where there was disagreement on who, the, who was on the white horse in the earlier chapters, I think chapters, chapter 6. Here, there's unanimous agreement that it is Christ who is on the white horse, but that is pretty much where the agreement ends. What is the event contained in these 11 verses? 
What is going on in those 11 verses, 11 through 21? Some people say it's the end of the world. It's judgment day. Others say in a very similar way it's, it's the rapture, which is followed by the millennium of chapter 20. Others, and I agree with them, see this passage as the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Verses 11 through 13, and we'll finish with this. Now I saw a heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Friends, I think what we see here, and again, we're going to finish this in more detail in two weeks, is Jesus Christ marching through history, conquering and to conquer. The success of the gospel is due to the truth and faithfulness of Christ. He is faithful and he is true. And he is with us, right? He is very much the player in this event. We have to ever be reminded that our battle is not primarily a social battle or a political battle or a moral battle, that our battle is a spiritual battle. We battle not against flesh and blood. Now, does it affect all of those things? Absolutely. But if we forget that at its heart, our battle is against principalities of darkness, if we forget that, then we lose before we begin. That's why the church ever must have right in front here, right where we have. We have, we have the elements. We have the Word of God. We have, you know, you'll see in some Bibles, we used to have one up here, a big Bible opened up. Word and sacrament, Word and sacrament. That is the heart of the battle. You lose that and you lose everything. Arguments against, I'm going to give this, and I have to because I'm an apologist and by degree, that's what my degree is in. So I have to do this. I'm going to tell you briefly, succinctly, and I'm not going to do the whole argument, why this is not the second coming. Because people are going to be like, oh, chapter 19 is the second coming. Let me give you a couple reasons why it's not. First of all, the second coming is never presented as Jesus coming on a horse. That's, that's not the way, and that relates to another objection I'll give you in just a second. Second, what we see in this chapter is a big process of things taking place. The second coming is not a process. The second coming happens in the twinkling of an eye. It's a cataclysmic thing. I mean, historically speaking, that second coming is not a series of events that takes place that Jesus comes and you have the resurrection of the living and the dead, and it's judgment day. Thirdly, and final for now, the sword is the word of God in this passage. The sword is the word of God, which is designed for redemption. And that would be of no value if this were judgment day. It's over. Now, what we have here, and see how it's so consistent with what we read in the rest of Scripture. Jesus is wearing many crowns. A moment ago, I talked about the Great Commission, right? making disciples, baptizing. But what, how does the Great Commission begin? Right? All authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me. Many crowns. Jesus has the many crowns. He has all the authority over all the nations, the kingdoms of this world as we read in 11.15, have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. He is the reigning King now. I don't know if you guys watched the debate I had with a premillennial friend. And I remember, I mean, I, I re-listened to it because I'm like going, okay, I don't want my memory to deceive me. And I would ask him, because I think this is non-negotiable. I asked him, is Jesus Christ currently the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords? And he could not say yes to that answer, that question. It, it was his, he danced around it. He goes, well, it's like being in escrow. 
And he got, went down to this whole big real estate thing. Maybe you could explain that to me later. He went down to this whole real estate thing. Well, he kind of has it. He's made the payments, but he's actually not taken possession. I'm like, so is he or is he not king of kings and lord of lords right now? Is he wearing the many crowns right now? Friends, that should be a non-negotiable in our understanding that he is prophet, priest. You know, there's a denomination right now. I don't want to be overly critical, but they are prophet, priest, and soon coming king. Well, no, it's not soon coming king. He is prophet, priest, and king now, currently. His garments of warfare, what are they? A robe dipped in his own blood. You know, as violent as this is, we recognize that it's really the blood of Christ. And his name is what? The Word of God. You see, this great battle to redeem the world is founded on the blood of Christ, which we come to know by the Word of God. It's kind of, I mean, to be honest with you, it's kind of simple. In our next meeting, we're going to discuss the remainder of the chapter and how we should respond to this. But for now, I want you to notice this. There is a a very sublime consistency in the message of Scripture. What the Westminster Confession calls the consent of all the parts. I mean, there's something very beautiful about the Bible. And I think not even in an extraordinary, supernatural way, but in a very natural way, You have the Word of God, you have the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period of time, people who wrote it of different professions, people who didn't even know each other, and yet the internal consistency of the Word of God is unbelievably consenting. People argue about contradictions, but there are none. The message is unified, and it's a message of redemption. And we see it in the Revelation as much as we see it in the other books of the, new, of the Old and New Testaments. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Christ, and we are to search the Word of God, wherein it is taught that the blood of Christ is to be preached to all nations. And now, the extent of this great commission will be addressed in two weeks, but for now. Just for now, settle down. I can, yeah, I'm projecting. I'm the one who's not settled. I'm telling you guys, settle down. But I want our hearts right now to be set firmly on the heart of hope, which will be conveyed in a moment when we go to the Lord's table. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize the battle in which we are called to engage. And we also pray, Father, that we would never lose sight that in this great vanguard moving through history, it is Christ, it is his battle, it is the zeal of the Lord that accomplishes this. So help us, Father, not to lose sight of the one who grants the eternal victory. And even this morning, Father, as we go to the Lord's table, May that message be firmly planted in our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen.